welcome to episode 222 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It is week two of BookCast. We're is. looking at this book called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture by David P. Murray. But, of course, before we get to that, we have to break into our usual custom of affirmations and denial. So what do you say? Let's just get right into it. Let's do it. Would so, you like to begin? I will begin. So I'm I'm affirming uh, an app recommendation for those of, of you who may be paying attention to our recommendations over the last like two months, Jesse and I are both on this like productivity kick right now, trying to figure out like absolutely the next best app that can help us tweak our day 2% to regain three minutes of our time. Uh, <laughs> and so the app that I'm trying right now is called Focus to Do. And what it is, um, I've used this uh, technique for quite a long time. But the hard part about it is you have to have something that helps you manage it or it becomes actually kind of difficult. So this is called the Pomodoro Technique. Jesse, do you know the Pomodoro Technique? Oh, yes. So the Pomodoro Technique, uh, Pomodoro is the Italian word for tomato. And I guess it's just because the timer that the guy who invented this used was shaped like a tomato. Um, Basically, what you do is you set a timer for 25 minutes. And then when the timer goes off, you take a five minute break. And then you do that again, and then every fourth, uh, every fourth cycle or fourth Pomodoro, which is a cycle of 25 minutes, you take a 15-minute break. And the idea behind this is that for those 25 minutes, you you are focused on a single task, and you you don't allow yourself to become distracted. And the 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 mental hook is that if you know there's a break coming, you're much less likely to sort of take that break when your attention starts to wane. So this app integrates a to-do list into that as well as a time tracker. So not only is it timing my Pomodoros just to keep that cycle going, because a lot of times you're like, wait, is this the fourth or the fifth Pomodoro? Do I take the 15 minute? Like it's hard to manage. (laughs) And a lot of people like have like a little notepad next to their desk. They track it. This does that for you. But then you can also put in tasks that you want to accomplish. And then as you're doing the Pomodoros, you assign it to different tasks. So then it tracks your time. And then on top of that, you can assign different Pomodoro values for different tasks. So for example, if I want to read my Bible for 30 minutes in the morning, it doesn't make sense for me to have a 25-minute Pomodoro cycle. So instead, I can do a 30-minute Pomodoro cycle, and then it automatically cuts off at 30 minutes and then gives me a five-minute break. When that's done, I just move on to the next task. So this app is great. I don't know if they have an Android version, but the version for iOS works phenomenally. You can buy a premium version that has some extra little features and allows you to sync between like your phone and your tablet if you use iOS both directions. Um, it's really great too when you hit you hit uh, done on one task, it pauses your current Pomodoro, pulls up your task list and asks you what you want to work on next. You hit it and it goes back into the list and it just starts where you, you know, picks up where you left off. So I've only been using it for maybe a week now, but I can already feel like the productivity juices flowing a little bit. So check it out. There's all sorts of other Pomodoro apps if you're interested in in trying the Pomodoro technique. It's not complicated. Um, I've found that it really just helps me focus. Uh, it helps me keep on track. 
And, and they, it really does work. Like it really helps you to feel like I know there's a break coming. So I know I'm a little bit tired of reading, you know, everybody gets that point where they're like, you're checking to the end, like how far to the end of the chapter, trying to figure out if you've got enough stamina to make it. This allows right. you to just like keep pushing through it a little bit more, um, because you know, there's a break coming. So even if your stamina is starting to wane, you don't have to feel like, oh man, if I'm going to have another hour of reading, I can't do this knowing like, all right, well in three more minutes, I can get up and take a quick stretch break is, is really helpful. You got to get those creative juices. Yes. The creative productivity juices are flowing. I love the way that you said that because it's equal parts encouraging and a little bit creepy, but I'm Mm -hmm. totally down with it. I'm actually familiar with this app, but I don't think I gave it a fair try. And maybe at that time I wasn't like really familiar with the Pomodoro technique because this is a very famous technique. Yeah. I think what's shocking about this and actually I'm sure you planned it this way. This is actually like a really good marriage with the book reset that we're talking about today, yeah. the second chapter or the first chapter, because this idea that you should be working for a period of time and then taking a break. If you were to ask me, what is that optimal period of time? I think I probably would have said before, well, it's gotta be like an hour, right? Or like yeah. an hour 15. And the fact that it's like 25 minutes, then again, after five minutes of reprieve right. and then get back into it. That was a little bit shocking when I first learned that. So I, I with you, I think our listeners should try this technique out yeah. even at work. Like it's, it's a good, the Pomodoro technique is great for if you're working at your desk to even take that five minutes to just get up, yep. walk around, get a drink, use that as that time. And you're not sacrificing according to all the, all of the research been done this technique, any kind of creativity or like right. the vibe or like getting into like the groove yep. of what you're doing. It's, it is wonderful. And this is a bit like, I think brother Lawrence, you know, like that, his book on like prayer yeah. where. I think people leave that concept untested and therefore they invalidate it. But I think here, I want to try this again. I'm going to try it. You've inspired me. I'm going to try it this week. See how it goes. Well, and what's nice about this app is it allows you to customize and tweak those default durations. So 25 minutes is pretty good for everybody. There's this really funny clip from The Office. Uh, It was early on. It was like a safety training episode. And the HR rep is like, all right, you should uh, get up from your desk and stretch like every 10 minutes or 10 minutes out of every hour. You should look away from your computer screen for 10 minutes out of every hour. And that's like a real recommendation is if you're if you're a worker who sits in front of a computer desk, 10 minutes of your day or 10 minutes of each hour should be spent away from your computer. So if you think about it, 25 minutes working, five minutes break, it's actually like a perfect timer for that. But if you find that 25 minutes is too long. Maybe you don't have an attention span to focus for 25 minutes. Well, crank that down to five minutes and give yourself a two minute break. Um, so it, it's flexible. Again, it allows you to set different Pomodoro lengths for different tasks. Um, you know, if you're, if you're really into a book and you want to give yourself longer periods of time, like if I was reading the dogmatics, uh, bobbing's dogmatics, I probably would set that Pomodoro length for like five, like maybe like 10 or 15 minutes because a lot of times you just, that fatigue when you're trying to rebobbing sets in like right away. Um, so giving yourself a little bit, a little bit more flexibility to get up and break, uh, is really helpful. And what I like about this, cause you're, you know, you're tracking your time as, as like this productivity kick. I've, I've done that in the past. Right. A lot of times Pomodoro technique tracking is kind of faulty because it it like tracks your break time as part of your overall task time. Right. This actually only tracks and records your active Pomodoro time. That break time is not associated with any particular task. It's just time that's considered out of your out of your tracking. 
Um, so I, I, I think it's great. Um, again, there are lots of Pomodoro apps out there. If this one doesn't suit your fancy, or if you have a particular need, um, there are some that like sync with, uh, Asana task list, which is, I use Asana, but, but it was too overwhelming for me to sync my Pomodoro with that. So check it out. It's called focus to do. You can find it in the app store for iPad or iPhone or your Apple watch, which I recently acquired. Check it out. It also sounds like we get some kind of kickback from this, but we don't. This mm-hmm. is like zero actual advertising on this podcast. And I would say, the only thing I want to add to that kind of in closing is that the irony of these devices or these kind of timers is that there sometimes could be a sense, well, somebody might ask, well, why do I want to spend or get really legalistic about the amount of time that I'm spending on something? It's actually not about that. It's actually about releasing you to right. focus for a period of time so that you can have really good and true rest and feel yeah. like you were actually productive during the time when you should be doing something. That's a game changer because as we'll talk about, we get so wrapped up in thinking that we're actually doing something and we're spread so thin in a million different ways that we're actually not accomplishing that. By the way, I think that with respect to Bavink, it's called the Bavadaro timer. And that is a lesser interval than the Pomodoro timer. Yeah. It depends on which, uh, which book you're reading, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I, I like that. You somebody's gonna listen to this and think like the, the Bavadero thing is like a real thing. They can look that up. Like you just received that joke either <laughs> so well or you're like, it's not even that funny. It's really a horrible pun that I'm just gonna go right past it. I like it. I like it a lot. Although if you listen to the um the Bobcast had James Anglington on, it's really more like Bav. So so instead of the Bobcast, it's actually the Bavcast. So it's the okay Bav- the Bavadoro technique. Bavadoro technique. Yes, yeah. yeah. You say potato. <laughs> <laughs> Was I supposed to finish that? <laughs> I, all, I I don't know anybody that says potato. I did reverse that. That's yeah. true. That's uh, true. Well, what Fair about enough. you? What are you affirming today? I have just a really quick, wonderful affirmation for me. So for a long time, I've been looking for some nice wireless earbuds. So I just figured I'd pass along an affirmation for those things in case anybody is also on this grand search. I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't say I'm a self-proclaimed audiophile. I do enjoy music and I really like headphones that are of like the more neutral variety. I don't need to have like a crushing amount of bass in everything that I'm listening to. So I discovered and recently ordered, I've been enjoying these earbuds from Tronics. they're called Sound Liberty 92, and they're just $30 on Amazon. And yeah. one of the reasons I like them, this is my personal preference, is I love the, the style of earbuds where they're the inner ear, kind of the, if anybody has like an iPhone or any kind of iOS device, it's like they just slide in. They're not the kind that go deep into the ear canal, but kind of sit within the canal. These are just more comfortable for me. Yeah. And these are just a great set. So, I mean, what a day and age in which we live. $30 for what I think are really great wireless earbuds. And the first wireless earbuds I've owned, I held out for a while because I was being that guy that was just like shaking my fist at the wireless. Like, why do you need wireless earbuds? My wired set is just fine. (laughs) It it, it kind of is a game changer. And I've noticed I've done this thing where I'm often using them at work. While I'm trying to do something uh, with concentration, often listening to the Mandalorian soundtrack, I'm trying to like impound as much affirmation into this single one. Exactly. So so beautiful. And I've noticed that apparently the wireless set was so influential for me that, or the wired set was so influential that I do this thing where I continue to like move the phantom wires like out of my way of my keyboard or my mouse, like as I'm listening. So I've been listening to these on walks. I've been listening to them while I'm doing work. 
I don't know. I don't know how you feel. I know you have wireless earbuds and I, maybe I'm just making too big a deal of this. I really, really enjoy them. And yet the only difference is there's no wires. <laughs> yeah. I, I love my wireless headphones, uh, my earbuds. I have skull candy ones that I think are just great. Skull candy indie uh, uh, earbuds. And uh, you know, I was one of those guys when people started walking around with, uh, the like official AirPods yes. that I wanted to just like walk up and slap them, them right out of their head. Um, and I still kind of do, although I'm more of an Apple guy than I was a year ago. Um, but yeah, there's something about it. I've had that experience too, where I have the, fa- the phantom wire going on. Um, or worse, this is the opposite effect when you're you're like right now, you and I are both wearing wired monitor headphones where you forget that you have wire and you like rip the wire out because oh, you, you go to move like you walk away and forget that you're attached to something. So, yeah, I, I think they're they're great. And you can get I mean, the ones that I have are are they're they're like mid end. They weren't they weren't cheap, but they were a good investment, I think, um, as though there's going to be some return on the investment. I guess the return is my enjoyment. Um but yeah, I think you can get good affordable ones. You can also get really, really junky ones. So do a little bit of research before you exactly. um, purchase. But yeah, the ones that you recommended are are great. The the skull candy ones are great. Even the iPad, the official AirPod ones, although I think there's probably some additional functionality with AirPods that you don't get with a standard traditional set of, of earbuds. Um yeah, check them out. They're great. I affirm that was your my affirmation. Hang up for the- that was my hangout for the longest time was how much to spend on these. So that's why I figured I'd pass along this affirmation, the Tautronic Sound Liberty 92s, in case somebody was like, I just need somebody else to let me know that these things are actually worthwhile and are decent yeah. at a price point of $30. And they're great. They have like all the touch stuff. You can like touch your ears, which I've discovered. I don't know if you've, do your ears have like a touch? Yeah. Some kind of like touch. Okay. So here's what I've noticed is my wife has several times come into the room while I've been enjoying the beautiful music coming from these earbuds. And I've discovered that it's impossible not to, to give off the impression of pretentiousness in trying to turn these off or lower the volume, because what I'm doing is touching my ear. It makes it look like I'm saying, don't talk to me. Yeah. I'm listening to something. So it's like hilarious that I just seem pretentious, even though I'm always like, no, no, I'm actually lowering the volume. I'm not trying to send you a signal. Like, you can't talk to me right now. What I've noticed is I look more and more like a CIA agent every day because not only do I have the thing where I put my I put my finger to my ear, but yeah. now when I want to start a new song, I talk into my watch. So it's like I'm talking into that little cuff they have on their, you know, on their wrist and I'm like, "Hold on a second." But yeah, it's it's pretty uh they're pretty great. I I yeah. I affirm everything FBI. you just said. You're basically FBI. So we're going to do some denials, but in like the typical, I think this is Robert's rule of order. And according to like normal debate, I'm voluntarily yielding (laughs) my denial to you because I understand that you have two denials for us today. I do. I'm not sure which one to start with. So I'm going to start with the one that I think is going to be quicker. Let me turn on my Pomodoro timer timer to make sure I don't go overboard on this. So I'm, some people may notice uh, I have uh, the, the reform brotherhood Twitter account has been more active lately. So if you haven't, this is a little bit of a plug embedded in my affirmation. If you haven't followed us on Twitter um, or Instagram for that matter, go check us out. Um, I'm trying to tweet more good confessional content. What I found on Twitter is that there's like two kinds of people. There's people that just want to like scream into the wind. Uh, and then there's people who use Twitter to basically like share pithy quotes. Um, I'm in the pithy quote camp with maybe a little bit of screaming in the wind. Um, so follow us there. But what, as I've been on Twitter, what I've noticed is there's this weird dynamic with a lot of like 
Twitter pastors, and I don't mean like pastors who try to pastor on Twitter, but I mean like pastors who are real active on Twitter. Um, They're extremely politically active on, on cultural and political issues like Monday through Friday. And then all of a sudden Saturday becomes all about how pastors shouldn't do anything but preach the gospel. So there's like this weird disparity between their behavior for most of the week and then like what they tell you on, on Saturday night. And the most recent one I saw was like, pastor, if you want to speak to the cultural issues, then preach Christ and him crucified and nothing else from your pulpit tomorrow morning. And I was like, okay, that that's fine, I guess. But like, where, where does that stop? Like, are you saying that only in the pulpit is when we should preach Christ and him crucified? Like, it, so it's just this weird disparity. That's kind of like attack on denial to my main denial. Um, but I, I've just noticed, I'm noticing some of these weird trends in the way people behave on Twitter that, that are just really like frustrating and discouraging. And like the latest thing now is like, Hey, check me out on Gab or check me out on right. or whatever the alternative social media platform is. And I'm like, why? Like, what are you, what are you hoping to gain? If you really think big media is coming after you, like you think another startup platform that has seven users is going to somehow be safer than Twitter or Facebook or any of these other like established platforms. Um, it's funny. I was watching a movie the other night. It was a little bit crude. I don't know that I would recommend it. It was certainly funny. It was kind of that stand up comedy style funny where there's a lot of stuff that's funny, but you, you maybe feel a little guilty after you watch it. And it was like a mockumentary on what happened in 2020. And there was a character that was supposed to be like, like, um, like basically like Trump's spokeswoman was like the, the thin blonde lady. And it was, uh, it was like, she was saying conservative voices are being silenced in the media. And then they showed like a hundred fake clips of her on like a different, different social medias and different interviews saying conservative voices are being silenced in the media. And the point was of course, like you wouldn't even know she was saying that if if there wasn't actually some reality of her having a platform to tell you that she has no platform. Right. And I feel like Twitter and Facebook for a lot of these these pastors that I'm describing, and, and not just pastors, but it's pastors that stick out to me because I sometimes wish there was a little bit more wisdom in some of our Twitter pastors. Um, it seems like that's what they're doing is they're telling us all about how they don't have a platform to tell us anything. But right. if, if we didn't have a platform for them to tell us then we wouldn't know anything about what they're saying. So that was denial. Number one, it, it, it's just a weird, like it's kind of one of those things that make you go, huh? Like, do they, do they yes. realize the, the strange paradoxical nature of what they're doing in the contradictory manner of, of what they're saying? And I think most of the time they don't, or they don't care. I guess, I don't know. I don't want to impute motives to them or, or say they're stupid. Cause most of these guys are really smart guys that I, I respect, but I'm, I'm just a little confused by it. I get what you're saying. I'm guessing other people know this too. I think in part what we're getting at, the root is we want our pastors to be pastors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard. This is just my perception from the outside looking into that ex- experience that once you have an audience, you want to sometimes maybe provide mm-hmm. the kind of critique that happens in like casual conversations in this platform. And I think self-editing is really important. I think yeah. that you really need to stick in the lane, stay on message. And if that message you're going to make is... Jesus Christ and his gospel, then actually that's really what we need all the time. Right. Which is kind of what you're saying. Like why stop just on the Lord's day and say like, this is important. Make that the thing that you're proclaiming all the time, even through Twitter. 
And I'll throw this out there, and I'm kind of borrowing from Tim Challies here, who recently had an article where he really admonished Christians. And I think this is so good. He actually said in the wake of everything that's going on, why don't you have your own blog on your own site? That, yeah. That's worth investing in because if what you're really concerned about is having quote unquote free speech or the ability to, in a more unencumbered way, proclaim the gospel, then make that your thing and be right. dedicated to that. If you use these other channels, which are really other sites, other social media companies of which really you and I are the product, we've right. talked about that before, then you can't expect that there aren't going to be times where there's going to be a limitation to what can be said or who can interact on those places. Right. So I, I'm with you because I, I sometimes question, and maybe this is like the wrong thing to say, do we as Christians need to be very careful about the sites that we use, especially if they're going to be associated with the kind of unencumbered free speech that could be potentially violent. So things like Parler and Gab, I know there were a lot of quote unquote conservative Christian voices that went there because they said, I want to make sure that my voice is heard. And it's hard because I understand that sentiment. Like we want to be able to proclaim the gospel. We don't have anybody say to us that you're not allowed to do that. And yeah. yet at the same time, those things have been appropriated by other things which Christians would would realistically say, I want to have no part to do with that. So right. These are all things in our time we have to sort out. But at the end of the day, they're all unnecessary, right? To like right. the proclamation and the going forward of God's kingdom. So we have to just say like, if our baseline is that these things are not in and of themselves essentially required for God to do his work, then if we have that as the kind of the veil, the sieve through which we're passing everything else, I think that starts to give us better perspective to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's my first denial uh, this is the one that I need you to hold me accountable on because I could easily rant for the rest of this episode about this denial. <laughs> Here we go. So let me let me start off by saying I don't hate anybody. Well, that's probably not true. I'm being honest, but I, I try not to be a hateful person. I try not to uh, I try not to bag on any one person too much, but. I'm denying Wayne Grudem, okay? I knew this is what it was going to be. I know that everybody <laughs> and their brother and their brother's brother read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. First sure. of all, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is just boring and hard to read, okay? It, it's, it's, I understand why it's popular among new to systematic theology people because it's very easy to digest. But it's like cotton candy, okay? It's it's simple sugars that you that dissolve in your mouth and go straight into your bloodstream. But that's not the aspect of it that I'm denying. So there's the, all this hubbaloo about Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, 2016, the EFS controversy, right? We did episodes on it. Um, the new edition came out, second edition came out, and he included an expanded section in the Trinity that specifically addresses the FS debate. And so there was all this lead up to it. Everybody was hoping there would be some clarification. Uh, everybody was hoping that there would be some valuable, like stepping back or reevaluating or openness, something. Now, I do want to say he has has adopted uh, or accepted the historic understanding of the eternal generation of the son, which is a good thing. Um, although the reason that he adopted it, I think you can, it's, it's easy enough to demonstrate that he's adopted eternal generation because it's basically a prop for this, this form of Trinitarianism that he's advocating. But here's what I'm denying about this chapter is 
it's just plain bad sloppy scholarship, okay? If someone turned in, first of all, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is written very much like the kind of work you would see coming out of like a freshman theology class. And there's nothing wrong with that. He was writing it in order to make it simple and approachable. I don't like it. I don't think it's a great place for anyone to linger too long, but I understand why it's there, what it's for. But this part of the chapter specifically, if someone were to turn this in to even a freshman or a first year seminary theology course, they they would and should get an F. And here's why. The scholarship in this section particularly is atrocious. So here's one example. I'm going to read a quote. He has a section. Let me back up. Wayne Grudem's methodology in his systematic theology, and this is, I'm summarizing his words here, but this is what he said, is essentially you collect a list of all of the Bible verses that speak about a particular topic, you list out those verses, and then you explain the ones that don't seem to fit the system and you synthesize it. He has explicitly said that there, he doesn't have a lot of room for historical theology in his systematic um, practice, right? So, so he, he, throughout the entire chapter of, on the Trinity, he makes almost no use of historical sources whatsoever. When you get to the section on EFS, he starts to dive into historic theology because he wants to prove he's trying to establish that this is not an innovative new theology that that never right. existed in the church, which was one of the main kind of accusations that went his direction. And so he has this list of quotes where he quotes various figures who say something that sounds like EFS. And he basically says, see, this has been in the church. These are respected people. So why, why are you getting after me about it? It's kind of the feel of it. So I'm going to read this quote by Charles Hodge. It says here, um, oh, I just lost it. Um, sorry, this is great podcasting, folks. This is beautiful. We need some kind of like music do, in here. Do, 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 do. Um, that was the Jeopardy theme song. It was very good. It's a wonderful tried. rendition. Could you hum us a little bit of uh, Mandalorian, maybe? I mean, the <laughs> this is the problem with Kindle is now that I've lost it, it's like gone forever. I have no idea where I am in relation to this quote. Yeah, it's going to be with Kindle. It's always a little bit of adventure to get back to the place that it you is, wanted yeah. to start. I wish that I had marked the page. Yeah. All right, here this we go. This is great. This is a quote by uh, from Charles Hodge from his Systematic Theology. He says, and I'm going to I'm going to read some diacritical marks that are in the text here. The Nicene doctrine includes one, the principle of the subordination of the son to the father and of the spirit to the father and the son. But this subordination does not imply inferiority dot dot dot. The subordination intended is only that which concerns the mode of subsistence and operation dot dot dot. The creeds are nothing more than a well-ordered arrangement of the facts of scripture, which concern the doctrine of the Trinity. They assert the distinct personality of the Father, Son, and Spirit, dot, 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 and their consequent perfect equality and the subordination of the Son to the Father and the Spirit to the Father and the Son, as to the mode of subsistence and operation. These are scriptural facts to which the creeds in question add nothing, and it is in this sense that they have been accepted by the church universal, end quote. And he cites, um, he cites Hodge Systematic Theology, Volume 1, pages 460 to 62. So he's, he's citing 
two or three full pages for that quote. Now, maybe I'm crazy. That doesn't sound like a quote that should be three full pages long. So I dug in a little bit. I went to my copy of Hodge's Systematic Theology. I tried to figure out what was embedded in those ellipses. That's what those dot, dot, dots are called. Now, usually an author uses an ellipsis in order to truncate a quote uh, by eliminating extra material that either doesn't doesn't contribute to the argument or is redundant. Um, you know, in another quote he uses, he uses the ellipses because it, he's quoting Herman Bovink, which is a whole different issue, but he uses the ellipses because Bovink makes a statement and then cites 10 or 15 scriptures to support it. And then he moves on. So he uses the ellipses to just basically not repeat those scripture citations in his quotation. That's a legitimate use. If you had to guess, cause I showed you the picture of my work on this. If right. you had to guess what percentage of the actual quote is hidden in these ellipses? What would you say based on Man. that image I showed you? In other words, what percentage of the words is he actually using? As yeah, opposed so, to the so full if you scope? took the actual full quote, which yeah. is three pages long, and you, you took out the words that are hidden in those ellipses that are truncated in the quote, what do you think the percentage of text he removed actually is? Oh, that he removed? I'm going to say 97 it's 87%. Wow. There are there are 890 words in the quote that he cites that from the very first word to the last word. There are 781 words that he has hidden in the ellipsis. Now, it's conceivable that maybe that's a legitimate use. If if everything within there was, you know, like let's say Carl Bart is famous for this. He'll he'll be making a point and then he goes in this long excursus on a totally different subject. Right. So maybe you might use an ellipsis to pull that excursus out just to keep your own text free. The issue is that within this ellipsis, all of the stuff that Hodge says refutes all of the stuff that Wayne Grudem is trying to make Hodge say. Because he's basically what Hodge is saying, and I'm I'm actually I submitted a proposal for my my regional ETS chapter to do a paper on this in the in the spring here. I think they're going to accept it, especially since I'm on the committee. I'm going to see if I can make them accept it. Um, he he is Hodge is using the word subordination in the classic use of the word suborder subordination, where we get the word ordinal numbers versus cardinal numbers. Right? Ordinal numbers are first, second, third. They tell you the order of a sequence. Cardinal numbers are one, two, three. They're they're counting numbers, right? Hodge is saying that there is a subordination in terms of order or taxes. There's a first, there's a second, there's a third. And that's a logical ordering, right? The father conceptually has to come first because it's the son who, who is begotten of the father. So you can't have the son before the father. And the spirit logically has to come third because the spirit is, is proceeding from the father and the son, right? That's what Hodge is talking about. In the ellipsis, Hodge says that that... We must balance this idea with the other unity of the Trinity, right? So everything that's hidden in that ellipsis is, is refuting what, uh, what he says here. And I'm not attributing nefarious intent to Wayne Grudem. This might actually be, I don't know if this is, is less charitable or not. I actually just think he's really incompetent because later on in this chapter, he cites, uh, I'm going to read the quote for you, and then I'll, I'll tell you who it is. He cites an author that's near and dear to both of our hearts. And this is the fatal flaw of this chapter. He starts to cite living theologians who have commented on the EFS controversy publicly. This author writes, 
Furthermore, biblical revelation identified each of these persons as thinking, willing, and active agents. Nothing exhibits this fact more than the covenant of redemption, pactum salutis, made between the divine persons in eternity, dot, dot, dot. I didn't do any research on the ellipses on this, but I'm, there's an ellipsis there. Although all three persons are mutually active in every external work of the Godhead, they are actively different. And that citation is from Michael Horton, the Christian faith systematic theology for pilgrims on the way, right? Well, I happen to remember an episode of Core Christianity in the summer of 2016 where someone wrote in and asked Mike Horton what he thought of the eternal functional uh, subordination of the sun. And here's what he says on episode 22 at the six minute and 23, six minute 23 second mark. Quote, the son is eternally God in exactly the same sense and to the same extent that the father and the Holy Spirit are God. Their nature is identical. So there is no eternal subordination of the son to the father. The son is equally sovereign to the father and the Holy Spirit. You can't get much clearer than that, right? Right. He, he explicitly says that stuff. I mean, he doesn't say it this way, but he, he's saying that stuff that Wayne Gruden's teaching is wrong. Here's what he says in episode 412 at uh, seven minutes and 56 seconds. Quote, the men who teach this don't intend this outcome, but they don't realize that this is the outcome, the logical outcome. And that's at 10 minutes and 17 seconds. There's a, an introductory period. And then at 10 minutes and 50 seconds, he says this, and this is the key. He says, if you really believe that, speaking of this idea that the son is subordinate to the father eternally in, 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 uh, in, uh, you know, ad intra, if you really believe this, then you aren't saved. Now he goes on to explain that he's talking about it in terms of the content of faith. If you have put your faith in, you know, faith has a knowledge content that, that notitia content in, in the classic definition, there's an actual knowledge uh, that you have to have or, or you're believing in a different God. He says, if your knowledge content contains the idea that the son in, in uh, you know, ad intra is subordinate to the father in eternity past, then you aren't saved. So, so here's the issue. And then I'll wrap it up because I know we have another topic that we want to get to eventually. The issue here <laughs> is not that Wayne Grudem is intentionally utilizing uh, these in a deceptive way. He may be. I don't know. I don't think he is. I don't think there's any reason to think he is. I think he just is bad at systematic and, and historical theology. I think that there's there's conclusive proof now that, you know what, he could have just emailed Mike Horton. Right. It's it's totally reasonable to think that he never heard this podcast. But if I was going to quote a living author uh, and I was going to publish a book that was going to be read by millions, hundreds of thousands of people, probably in the middle of a controversy, I might pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, I'm going to quote you. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding you right first, though. Right. And instead, he he marshals support for this person who actually explicitly affirms the opposite of the, the conclusion that Grudem is coming to. That is just sloppy, bad. Uh, sloppy, bad scholarship. And right. now we know that he misuses quotes, even, even if Hodge is um, somehow in agreement with him, he's misused that quote so dramatically by, by hiding almost 90% of the quote from you, which breaks over section breaks, expands over whole pages in the systematic theology. I can't imagine that if he was, was grading a paper in one of his classes and he found a quote that actually hid like 90% of it and hid relevant details, relevant information about the, about the topic that he would give that paper a passing grade. Yet we see this list of historical sources. I won't get into the Bavik quote. I'm sure it'll come up at some point in the future, but the short end of it is he pulls a quote out of Bavink's Christology 
and applies it to this, even though Bavink says precisely the opposite in his actual section on Trinity. So I, I don't I don't have a conclusion to this other than to say all of you people out there who are still recommending Wayne Grudem's systematic theology for new believers, stop it. Stop it. It's not a good book. It's not worth the issues that are in hand. There are all sorts of better accessible systematic theolo uh, theologies that not only don't teach heresy, which is what eternal functional subordination is, but are actually good scholarship. Um, right. And it goes back to, and th this is what calls Wayne Grudem as a scholar into question for me now, is if you go back to his methodology, his methodology is basically to line up proof texts and then to explain those proof texts and how they, how they prove your point. Well, that's exactly what he's doing with these historical quotes, right? He's just lining up what he thinks are proof texts. He's ripping them out of context. He's ignoring significant embedded text in those in those proof texts, and he's just lining them up without any real uh, awareness or attempt to accurately or faithfully represent them. Um, that's just sloppy. I think it's more charitable to think that he's just being incompetent in this than it is to think that he's being nefarious. Um, but I, neither one of those paint him in a particularly positive light. But I don't know that there's another conclusion we can come to with something that's just this egregious. I think the only thing that could be worse would be if he was demonstrating somewhere to have just rank plagiarism. Um, right. That that's the, Academically, that's probably the next, the only worse thing than, than misusing a quote in this kind of egregious manner. Right. Either way, bad form, Mr. Grudem, bad mm -hmm. form. So it strikes me that as you said, all of that, which by the way, is probably on record now for the longest single denial. Well, other than some, those ones that turned into full episodes. Yeah, that's, that is possible. Factually in terms correct. of uh, the longest, I'm not even sure you breathed until the very end of that. So <laughs> in terms of like single longest denial, yeah. but I, it struck me that as you're saying that maybe there's some that aren't familiar with EFS or what that even stands for. So I just want to point people to, an episode that we did all the way back. Do, do you remember? 50, Where would you say? Was it 56 or 57? So close. So close. Episode 47. Okay. We devoted 47 to and called, 49. Yes, yes. The eternal functional subordination controversy. So please go back to that. If you've heard what Tony just said there and you struck your fancy in terms of your interest into what is he talking about? Yeah. We spoke about this, including Mr. Grudem all the way back in episode 47, the yeah. eternal functional subordination controversy. Go check that out. Yes. All right. Well, enough of my ranting. I don't know how long I ranted for, but it seems like it was a, a moderately reasonable amount of time. Oh, it was epic. Yeah. I, I mean, moderate might be understanding, but it was good. So we're back into really the first official chapter of this book called Reset. And I, I think we actually do have enough time to cover this because this chapter is all about basically providing the starting point for assessing where your life, I'm going to say it this way, where your life might be a little bit off track. Yeah. He calls it repair bay number one and reality check. And really the idea is he goes through this really expansive list of all these possible warning signs that they might be physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, that you might say these things, if they're present in my life, would cause me to give pause and say, where have I gone off the rails? Is it possible that I myself am heading toward a place of burnout? And I think that this book and these conversations might be the most intensely practical thing you and I have ever done on this podcast. Yeah. Because what I appreciate about David here is he's all about getting after what can I do about this stuff? And he starts before he even gets to this list, which I would encourage everybody who's listening to this, go check out this chapter merely for the list, because I think it's really diagnostic yeah. and super helpful. 
And it's going to be the kind of thing that you're going to read. At least I did. And I was like, oh my word. I definitely have several of these things across the spectrum of different topics he's talking about Yeah, that I need to really ponder because if he's saying these are warning signs or warning lights, he says like check engine lights, then I ought to take stock of what he's saying. But the first thing that he points out that I think might be somewhat controversial on the face is he basically says, listen, I had neglected, this is him as the author speaking, I didn't neglect the means of grace. I did private devotions. I did family worship. I was stellar in my church attendance. I had a disciplined and steady routine, but all these things became routine and then there was no joy in them. And yeah. he's basically making the case that what he calls graces, which we would normally call these things graces, but things like sleep, exercise, peace, relaxation, a good diet, friendships, reflection, all these things are actually productive realities that infuse or bring back joy into the other things that we do. And that's really the place where he starts in this chapter. Yeah. And, you know, before we go much further, I do want to say this. So I mentioned this last week, um, and I don't want this to be misconstrued. This book is all law. And what I mean by that is, is using the kind of law gospel distinction. This book is explicitly written for Christians who have already come to faith in Jesus Christ. And right. this is this is all law. So so I want people, as you read this chapter particularly, because I think this one is all about the problem, right? So this if, if we were if this was a sermon, this is this is pounding on, you know, on um the beginning of Ephesians 2. We haven't gotten to Ephesians 8, you know, 2 8 yet. So so this chapter can be a little discouraging if you read it in isolation from the main goal of his book. So so I know that while I was reading uh, the different lists and we'll, we'll talk about them. But as I was reading them, I had kind of the same experience of like, dang, I, I'm in trouble. Like I'm, and, and maybe I am like, I don't want to discount right. that. But I also, after reflecting on a little bit, cause you know, I, I read it and then I went and prayed for a little while and I kind of went back through the lists again. Some of the things on the list may only be a warning sign to some people, right? It's not a universal. And he, I don't, I don't remember him explicitly saying this, but for example, uh, the first warning, the first warning that he talks about are physical warning signs. And he says, you are suffering health issues one after another. Well, that may not be a result of burnout, right? That that may just be that God's providence has caused you to have someone who has several health issues. So you shouldn't necessarily look at this and go, well, I've had a lot of health issues one after another. So automatically I know that I'm experiencing burnout, right? Or for example, um, concentration is hard, distractions easy. There might be all sorts of reasons for why that is that aren't necessarily sure. burnout. Um, and not all of these things fall in the category of sin. I think that's important too, because that's not what he's saying. Some of them certainly do. Some, some of right. them actually fall into the category of basically like you started sinning more and that's a good sign that you're burned out, which is true. Like when you're, when your morality starts to slip, it's probably because you've lost, uh, lost some sort of balance point uh, in your walk with God that needs to be restored, you know, through prayer and right. by the Holy Spirit. So I want I want the listeners, because of the way we're digesting this in sort of these discrete chapters, this is not necessarily the kind of book that if you were reading it just normally, you you would stop at just one chapter because they're so short, you probably would need more than one. Read this chapter and understand it in light of what he said in the first the first chapter, that this is all about getting to a grace-filled life, a grace-driven pace, grace-paced life. So when you read this and you're like, oh man, this is really heavy. I feel like I'm getting pounded on by the law. Just remember that he's getting to, he's going to get to the point where he talks about how the gospel informs this and how we right. should have have grace for ourselves when we do fail at, at this task, because we're never going to succeed 100%. 
Agreed. And that's the very thing that I think makes this so useful. One, I think he's almost like a good friend who's willing to tell you yeah. what you need to hear and not necessarily what you want to hear. And I think that's why he makes such a big deal of this list being warning signs or indicators. So, and he keeps comparing, of course, to like a vehicle, but if like your check engine light comes on, obviously there are people that drive around with the check engine light on for a long period of time. It doesn't mean your engine is broken. It means there's something worth investigating. And the law is by nature a diagnostic tool. Right. So I think what he's getting after here is that in places where before we might have disassociated something that's happening in our life with a spiritual condition, he's saying, don't do that. In fact, you shouldn't compartmentalize. If, for instance, you cannot sleep at night, if you are worn out, if you finally have excessive fatigue, you need to at least consider that that might be because you're actually burning yourself out all over the place and that that's actually going to inevitably lead to disaster. And he develops the idea by something that I think you and I have talked about, but is somewhat taboo to say among Christian circles. And that is that sometimes God will literally use these things like emotional exhaustion, mental exhaustion, or even some kind of physical disability to stop you in your tracks and slow you down because he's saying that your joy has been sucked out of all these things, but you continue to pursue them as if saying that productivity for the gospel, productivity for the kingdom, aside from an attitude that is wholeheartedly invested in those things with joy, is somehow good. And he's saying it's not good. It's possible that God will knock you on your butt to get you to realize that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this ties in. uh, We didn't plan this. Well, we don't really plan anything, but we didn't plan (laughs) this when we did our our end of the year episode, right? Which really ended up being mostly about this idea that God... Even even the the hard providences, maybe especially the hard providences that come our way, are right. ultimately for our good. It doesn't mean that the things that happen are good, but it means that they happen for our good. And so he he talks very candidly about his own experience, and I've heard him speak about this in other venues. He he had a very serious life potentially life ending uh, blood clot scenario going on. Um, you know, I, he, he talks about how he ended up in the hospital after a very brief stint, uh, of, of discomfort that he wanted to shrug off, but his wife, uh, his wife would not let him. Maybe that's a good, in, a good, uh, informative point for all of us guys is that when your wife tells you something's wrong, don't just shrug it off. Don't, don't just be like, no, I'm fine. It's fine. It'll pass. Maybe listen to her. She cares for you. She's, she's attuned to those things. Maybe in a way most of us guys aren't, um, but he, he went to the hospital grudgingly. He went to, or he went to the to the like urgent care grudgingly. They did some tests and they were relatively inconclusive, but the doctor wanted him to go to the, the actual hospital and have some more intense in-depth testing. He kind of went grudgingly. And when he got there, it had been revealed that he had multiple blood clots in both lungs. And they right. basically said, if you don't stop moving right now, you might you might die because you're gonna knock off more blood clots. They were that severe. And so, so he starts off the chapter by basically showing, and he uses this terminology, he wrecked the car. Like he, he, not only did he ignore the warning lights, he drove his car into a wall, right? So he's, he's trying to say, not only don't drive your car into a wall, but get the oil change too. Like take care of the vehicle, you know, check your tire pressure, check your oil, make sure that if a light comes on on your dashboard, you don't, you know, you don't ignore it, change your taillights. All of these things are important. So he starts off by saying, here's the worst case scenario. You're not paying attention on the road. You drive in, you drive into a wall or off a cliff and it's done. It's all over at that point. He's saying, even before you get to that point, 
you should be diligent enough and focused enough and conscious enough to notice some of these warning signs. And that's where he goes into this list. But he starts off by saying and praising God for the fact that he sent the blood clots. And yeah. you're right. That is language that we're not, we're not comfortable talking about. How many of us in a conversation with a believer or a non-believer have expressed gratitude for coronavirus? I, I, don't, I don't know that any Christian has really said that to me. Uh, I, I've talked about it a little bit because of our focus on this in the last year. I've mentioned it to people about how I'm thankful because I think our, our church community, our local church paradoxically is becoming more connected to each other than we even were before. Because before we relied on, uh, largely we relied on that in-person gathering on Sunday to form those social bonds that are, are part of what it means to be a part of the church. But we don't right. have that anymore. So now we're learning ways to form those social bonds in ways that don't necessarily depend on just that one, one event, which the purpose of the Lord says not really to form social bonds anyways. So there are good things coming out of it. And I don't think we're comfortable saying things like I'm thankful for the fact that God sent coronavirus to help me form these bonds with my fellow congregation members. I'm thankful that God took this job away from me by getting, by, by allowing me or causing me to be fired so that I could see this other direction that he wanted to take my life. Like all of those things are good providences that are hard that come our way. And he's saying the first step to understanding what God may be doing in our lives is to accept that sometimes these hard providences are to get our attention and to get right. us back on the right track. Right. And he's making the case that sometimes we don't even know that we're going in a direction that's off the track. Mm -hmm. And this is where the reality check title is so apropos because I think he's after actually something that is deeper than most of us want to talk about. And so part of this is because like our culture has appropriated certain things, at least in the West. So when he gets into things like exercise and sleep and good diet, I think many of us can be like, yeah, yeah, yeah I get that stuff, but I'm not like some new age hippie guy. Right. Like I just, I, God has given me a job to do and I need to work at that really, really diligent and really, really hard. I'm going to sacrifice for him. And how important is it that I'd go out and make sure I get exercise or go for a walk or make sure that I have enough vegetables. And he's basically saying it's super important. In fact, right. don't let those other cultural influences appropriate what God has given to us as the manner in which we ought to live. He's essentially saying you should be comfortable and feel maybe perhaps tired from the work that you do, but never in a way that's like unfulfilled physically or that yeah. sacrifices your well-being. And he quotes another pastor who was in crisis who says this, if the way you're living isn't healthy, isn't expanding your soul and deepening your love for God and fellow humans, then a crisis that awakens you to your need for change is a good thing. It's a God thing. Right. And that's my experience, end quote. That is That just floored me as a quote because what he's basically challenging us is, the way in which you live, if it's not healthy, if it's not this kind of thing that is expanding and empowering you to love God. And when he says that, what he's really after is for the longest time, and even now I struggle with this, there's this sense that I want to be as productive as possible. Like we just talked about, there's this pension in my own life to say every activity should be like a maximized for the potentiality to produce some kind of productive result. And he's saying, if you sacrifice rest even rest daily, even restful things, even things in the way in which you feed your body, then those are all as equally productive as the thing that you think that you're doing and allocating your time to that is, in your own mind, super productive. Yeah, That is, I think, not necessarily a new idea among Christians. I think it was better represented and accepted in the historical realm. But for us now, it's not that we pride ourselves on being super productive. We're just going to go to that end. 
but it's that we do not see that we're actually harming ourselves. And he's like a good friend that's like literally saying to you, listen, just take a look at what I'm saying here and process it yourself and test whether or not this is what actually God has in mind for us. I think this is a very unpopular idea because I think what happens is until we get to the point, and this happens particularly among people in vocational ministry, we get to the point where you're actually burned out, that like your love and your fire for people and for God is gone. Then you say like, well, I need a sabbatical or I need to resign. I need to step away from this. But what about the rest of us who are somewhere in the middle of that realm? What if the ways in which we think we're acting and giving to our churches and subscribing to these ideas and these processes and these things, these programs, what if... What if we're actually semi-burned out and we don't know it? So we're actually not being efficacious because we're not taking care of ourselves in the way that God commands us to take care of ourselves and to feed ourselves with his word and with his spirit. And so we've forsaken those things for what we think are more productive endeavors when all the while we're actually sacrificing our ability to do the thing that God has called us to do. I guess I'm just like trying to sound the alarm that I think he's giving, which is though, what if everybody, what if, would you at least think about that potentiality? Yeah. And you know, here's, here's a really sobering thought. So let me backtrack. When, when I was in seminary, before I went to Gordon Conwell, I did three quarters. It was a weird seminary that did quarters instead of semesters, but I did three quarters at Bethel seminary in Minneapolis. And I took a course on transformational leadership, which was like the biggest fluff course that you could ever take. And one of the books that we used was drastically out of date. It was a book on basically like um, CEOs that were super, uh, super effective and like what their leadership styles were. And it was funny because the first CEO they mentioned was the CEO of Circuit City, which had declared bankruptcy like three days before the course started. And this quote from this pastor in crisis that you just mentioned hit me the same exact way. And, And I think that this is a sobering reminder that... Although we affirm as reformed Christians that those who are truly saved by Jesus can never fall away permanently. Right. We also affirm that there is an element of the Christian faith. It's not, I know that R.C. Sproul loves to rephrase it as preservation of the saints, and there's certainly a true element of that. But the reason it has historically been called perseverance of the saints is because the saints have an active role in persevering, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sustained by God, right? This pastor who is quoted... Uh, is Joshua Harris. And, and he, if you follow Joshua Harris's trajectory, this was an article from Christianity Today about why he was leaving his super successful, quote unquote, successful ministry. He didn't, he didn't recalibrate. He didn't, uh, right, he didn't exactly. slow down. He didn't take the steps that, uh, that uh, Murray here is suggesting. He just reoriented all of his energies to a different project, right? And it was only just a matter of years later uh, actually, when was that book? When was that published? That was in uh, 2015. So it was only a matter of maybe four years later that he had abandoned the faith. He he didn't slow down, and so although at the time it looked like you know Murray was using the available information at the time, there's no issue with that when he wrote this. It looked like like Harris was this brilliant example of someone who was aware enough and had the right speaking, right people speaking into his life, was was making the right decisions to step away, to recalibrate, to reset, to use the title of the book, but he didn't. And so I think that that's a good warning for us as well that, you know, you can, you can turn 
this process that Murray is kind of suggesting that you go through, right? This, this book is designed to be basically like a workbook for you to reset your own, like to recalibrate what you're doing in your life and to, to sort of recalibrate to avoid burnout. Well, you can turn this task list into just another, another task list added on top of it, which increases your burnout, not decreases it. And so the fact that he uses this example of Joshua Harris, who didn't actually recalibrate, providentially serves as kind of a cautionary tale for us that as we work through this book, we cannot just add it to our list of things to do. We can't just add recalibrate or reset or however we want to frame it. You can't just add that to your list of things to do if you want it to be successful. You have to actually do the hard work, ironically, of stopping doing some things. If you're overburdened, you can't just try harder. You have to alleviate the burden. Um, you know, you know, the, the metaphor, like I've got a really full plate at work. Well, uh, the answer to a full plate is not to just get a bigger plate or to just load more, more on the plate or to find a better way to stack up the plate. You know, this productivity kick Jesse and I are on, it's not just about trying to cram more stuff in to, um, into your day. You know, Jesse's using some new time tracking software. I'm using this time tracking software. The point of that kind of time tracking is to actually get a real understanding of how you are using your time. Do I find, I think we would all be surprised how we use our time. Do I find, do I feel like I'm doing enough Bible reading, but then when it it turns out that actually I'm spending, you know, an hour every day reading comic books and 15 minutes every day reading the scripture. Well, that's a, that's a pretty hefty imbalance. So so I don't want us just to look at this and think like, all right, here's another here's another checklist of things to do. Um, I think we need to slow down. We need to, uh, just like when you take your car to the mechanic, it's annoying, but you can't drive your car while it's at the mechanic. Right. And that's, that's what he's saying. That's what this metaphor right. is, is you have to actually pull into the repair bay, which means interrupting your life long enough to get a sober assessment of what's going on. Right. That's yeah, what you that's, have to do. That's fair. It's not convenient. It's not convenient. And here's a, here's an illustration. Uh, last week, for the first time since the pandemic started, I, I needed to go get my oil changed and get my tires rotated. So I went in on a Saturday morning, had the whole day planned out. I was all set to go. Um, went in. They did the rotation. They did the oil change. Took a little bit longer than I expected, but it's not a big deal. I was a little bit off my schedule. Well, I drove out, and immediately I could hear this tick that was cycling with the tires. So I'm like, oh man, what did they do? Well, I went back in and what had happened, this was their theory and I think it's probably right. I had picked up a giant screw, like like probably like a four or five inch screw that was embedded in my tire. And it was embedded hard enough that it wasn't leaking air very much, very fast, but it was going to eventually. And the theory that I think is probably right is that that was on my back, one of my back tires And so I wasn't hearing it because the way it was fixed on the back tire, it was not hitting the ground. But when they rotated that tire to the front, now it's hitting the ground when I turn a certain direction that it wasn't before. Well, I had to take it back. I had to sit there while they fixed it. That interrupted my day. But you know what? If I'd kept driving on that tire, I could have had a blowout on the freeway. That could have been a very dangerous situation. So even though it wasn't convenient, even though it interrupted my day, even though it wasn't what I was planning on, it was really important for me to go back take the time to get it addressed properly. And that's what he's advocating with this metaphor of these repair bays. Right. Yeah, that's very fair. I think that's the proper way to think about it. I'm glad you said something I think is worth at least emphasizing as we draw this particular chapter to a close. And that is, he is asking us to do some work, 
but it's not the kind of work that you might think of where it's like, here's five steps to go through and to do an assessment. In fact, more of what he says is you need to take these things and just spend some time meditating on them. See if these are actually warning signs in your life. And there's something in the combination of the warning signs that's nonlinear. So what he's actually suggesting is that as you go through and you find them and they kind of start to group together, that you might find that this actually indicates more than any one of them by themselves. So be spend, spend some special time taking a look at how and what the cumulative effect is of all these together. But I think the, ask he's, the work he's asking us to do is especially in this rest idea, rest in sleep, rest in food, rest in exercise, because he doesn't say this here, but here's my impression. He's basically calling us to the fact that God acknowledges that to do work, to do godly work, to do vocational work is a good thing right. that God gives us and has made us as beings that want to work, that are satisfied in actually doing something. But I think, and this is my own observation now, and I'm going to superimpose it on him, that there's actually a greater danger in overworking than there is in underworking. That it that will destroy your body, it'll destroy your mind, it'll destroy yeah. the work that God has that's set up for you. And God knows this, but what all that he's asked, in other words, like if you look at the week that God sets before us, like the literal week he has created, one in seven to rest, that's just 14% of the hours that you have altogether or set aside, God says that's a rest. So God himself over indexes our week as it were toward this idea of working because that's how he's created us. But he said, listen, 14% of the time you need to be devoted, wholly devoted work toward resting to be refreshed, to be rejuvenated. And I think that to be able to have a gift that says like, you know, even in our world in the secular sense, so to speak, recognize that rest is necessary, but they allow way more time than that, double the amount of time. Right. right? 28% for rest. And God's even saying, well, that's not explicitly necessary, but rest definitely is. Yeah. And so that needs to be made a priority. And so it just amazes me that basically God sets aside, what, like 86% of our time, which it sounds like is nearly the amount of text that Wayne Grudem ignores <laughs> from most of the quotes that he publishes. That in that same like kind of magnitude, God says, yeah, do that work. Go and be about that business. But rest is so critically important. Yeah. I've set aside time. We need to respect that. So this is Sabbath. This is rest. But I love that he's thinking about this in an integrative kind of way. I think this is where Christians feel like this is territory that they can't tread on with themselves or maybe with their others, even their loved ones, which is to say, hey, listen, maybe the way that you're taking care of your body or the way that you eat or the way that you spend your time or the way that you think you, you ox over, maybe those things are actually detrimental to the work that God wants to do through you. That is something that not many people are emboldened enough to say to themselves yeah. or to one another. So I hope that people will pick up this chapter and will actually listen to what he has to say, because it might be so shocking that it's correct. And yeah. I, I think that it is. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up this chapter. You know, I think we can explain this chapter. We can explain this book to you. We can talk about it on the air. Right. But because of the eminently practical nature of this book, right? He, he literally is giving you homework to do as you read this. It, it's, yes. it's more of a workbook than, than anything that we've, we've really talked about or read through on, on the air before. So you really can't get the full effect of this book unless you purchase it and read through it with us. So it's available just about anywhere. Um, Jesse and I are doing the Kindle version, uh, which is, I think it was like, 
maybe like 15 bucks when I bought it. I'm sure you can. Less than that. Yeah, you can get it pretty cheap. Um, You know, you can get a free Kindle app for your phone or for your computer. So if if you want to do it that way or just buy the hard hard copy book. Um, But on top of that, once you've purchased it, you read it, you read through it with us. We've gone through this whole thing. Uh, we're going to do a giveaway. Crossway has generously provided a copy for us to give away at the end of this series. So there'll be more information about how you can enter that giveaway coming up uh, in the near future here. But then you can give that free book, that copy that you win, you can give it to someone in your life who you know needs this. And here's here's the kicker. It's not insulting to give it to someone because everybody needs this book, right? For sure. I don't know anybody it's in my gift. world who who would say like, yeah, I feel like I have no stress. I feel like I'm not burned out at all. I feel like I'm always able to accomplish everything that I want. You know, I just feel like I'm really in that sweet spot. Yeah, everybody has times where they feel like they're firing on all cylinders. But I think more often than not, especially in this pandemic world where we're, we have to add extra time and extra stuff um, that we aren't anticipating. You know, and any minute we could be getting a phone call to say like, yeah, well, somebody at the hardware store that you were in line behind has coronavirus. So I know you had plans for the next 14 days of your life, but too bad. Um, having a book like this and working through this process and building that space in your life to sort of absorb some of this, I think is good. So pick up the book, read through it with us, take these lessons and apply them to your life and, and really get that practicality out of it. And then when you win a copy in like two months, three months, whenever it is, give it away to someone that you know needs it as well. Yeah. Share it with a brother and sister. This is all about making the brotherhood stronger. That's part of the reason why we have these discussions. And speaking of making the brotherhood stronger, I would be remiss if I didn't call out somebody as we end this episode. And that is brother Conrad, who is our newest donor who actually wanted to support the podcast through Patreon. And I bring that up only because one, that is such a gift to us. I can't that talk about having a burden release from us in terms of like incidental expenses and being able to use this funds to move up with the podcast and the Society of Reformed Podcasters at large. Um, but the reason why we talk about this, loved ones, is not because this is not, like we said before, like your national public radio drive. We're not in it to try to raise funds. We do know, though, that we have so many wonderful brothers and sisters that often reach out to us and say, how can we help? I would like to be able to give to continue to forward the mission that you guys are on in trying to equip the brotherhood in ways like this. So if that's you, just go on over to reformbrotherhood.com. There's a link in the upper right-hand corner that says join the brotherhood. There's six different ways actually that you can join in. One of those ways is to become a Patreon donor. And we have people that give all different types of sums to us, either one time on a regular basis. And we're just so thankful. So if that, if you're the kind of person that says, you know what, um, God has blessed me. And after the first commitment of giving financially to my church, I have a little bit left over that I'd like to push your way. We of course are happy to receive that. So I wanted to say thank you to brother Conrad for being willing to be a, a giver to support this mission. I'm so, so, so grateful. And I assume like this is the kind of thing, Tony, like one day, when we are reunited, the new heaven, the new earth, we're going to meet all these people whom we've interacted with either by email or voicemail or give to us. And I, I'm actually really looking forward to it. It's going to be super fun. So well, thanks, Brother Conrad. I don't know that we need to wait because, uh, you know, my whole goal with Patreon is to get enough to buy like a G4 and then I'll just fly around <laughs> the country and we'll have like a party. Wait, wait a second. Like Ken Copeland did style. Like, did you just Creflo Dollar yeah, our exactly. Patreon account? No, seriously though, we, we, we try really hard. Uh, to use this money in a way 
that is glorifying God and is faithful to the intention of those who give it, which is to foster this kind of podcast movement that Jesse and I are working on starting, which is is the Reformed Brotherhood, but it's also you know, the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Right. Um, I'm in talks. I'm not going to say who it is right now, but I'm in talks with a show that is is not necessarily going to want to, you know, outwardly state that they're part of the Society of Reformed Brotherhood because of who their audience is. But, w- you know, w- we want to be able to support other shows that are doing good work and furthering the gospel, even if they don't formally uh, join the the society. So the the money that's given is we do our best to try to to do that. You know we're, we're not we're not out there. You know and Jesse and I are together at midwinter. No reason. Like we're not out there buying hundred dollar bottles of scotch with money out of the Reform Brotherhood uh, account. Although that that you know maybe. If you give to, I'm not, I was going to make a joke about if you give to Distilling Theology, they might do that. I, they, they use their funds in a very similar way. So um, so if you are interested, if you want to do a one-time gift and you're not a fan of Patreon, shoot us an email at info at reformbrotherhood.com. We have other ways that you can get those funds uh, to us that don't involve Patreon. I know there are some people that are uh, weirdly, I don't want to say it's weird that they're concerned about it. I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just going to stop. There are some people who have concerns that are very likely <laughs> entirely legitimate <laughs> about Patreon that don't want to use Patreon. So if you are one of those people and want to give through another venue, let us know. And as always, we want to make sure, you know, we're grateful for every gift we get, yes. but we also want to make sure that you are are not prioritizing us over supporting your local uh, your local congregation. Um, your, your pastor and his family depends on you uh, being generous and faithful in your your gifts and your offerings to your church way before we need it. So um, so check that out, patreon.com. You can find the links on our website as well. And if you are interested in getting some Reformed Brotherhood merchandise oh, and supporting us right. that way, we are hoping to get that uh, store back up and running with some new gear uh, very soon. So if you, if you want to purchase a T-shirt or some other gear, then we are going to be working on getting that back up and running for you soon. It's it's coming. I just noticed, by the way, and I love this, that on the website, which you have expertly put together, when you're looking at the page, that's the Join the Brotherhood page, I just felt this immense sense of responsibility and pressure because the title reads, The Reformation Just Got a Whole Lot Better. Join the Brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that. Listen, if you thought the Reformation was great, but you know not as good as it could be, <laughs> apparently that's because you haven't joined the Brotherhood yet. We're adding that really extra level on the margin. We're bringing up the average on really the quality and content of the Reformation. That's us. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, us. Yeah, I guess. That's like yeah. Acts 29, which is like the most arrogant name for a church planting network ever. <laughs> yeah. The spirit of the Reformation is to keep reforming. So that's what we're yeah. going after. So yeah, that's, that's true. This is great. You know why this is great is because... You know, brothers and sisters, as you listen all the way to the bitter end, we're going to trigger from second one (laughs) to whenever we choose to end. This is how we do. So in that spirit, Tony, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.